Hello, and welcome to the Real Weird Podcast. October 11th, Creature Features. Hey everyone, welcome back. Thanks for joining me again today on the 11th episode of the 31 Days of Halloween special. Um, so, yeah, first things first, I just wanted to say, this was originally supposed to be a... Uh, six-entry episode about um, Japanese and Korean horror movies. Unfortunately, I... Unfortunately, like I mentioned in the episode yesterday, my DVD player's been broken, and I just have not been able to find the time to get it fixed, and I don't have the money for a new one yet. So I was not able to uh, watch any of those. The... There is one holdover from that version, uh, which is the host, which we'll get to later. But as it stands, I decided we're going to keep it simple, go back to a little bit of basics, and instead I am going to talk about probably what is one of the oldest types of stories there is and the sort of horror movies that were made off of it. We're going to go Man versus Beast. So I've got six entries for you know, creature features, ones that are basically about killer animals, uh, mundane, mutant, whatever. Uh, a lot of these were pretty common in the late 70s to mid-80s, just because obviously everyone was trying to cash in on the publicity and success of Jaws, just like how a few years later everyone was trying to cash in on the you know success of Halloween with a slasher film. So we're going to go through them uh, really, really, well, not necessarily quickly. Some of these I do want to talk about because they're actually kind of fun as far as, you know, kind of, uh, <laughs> as kind of cynically made horror movies can be. So first up, we're going to go with Grizzly by William Girdler. Now, stop me if you've heard this one before. There's a small town being menaced by an abnormally large carnivorous animal. But the town officials are desperate to keep the town open for business. So we have a trio of a hunter, a law enforcement agent, and a naturalist teaming up to... Actually, stop me. <laughs> but yeah, in all seriousness, uh, William Girdler is the director. He's most known for his movie Abbey a couple of years earlier where he was trying to cash in off the success of The Exorcist. And that movie's pretty good, but the funny thing is Warner Brothers actually owns it because they were like, hey, you just made our movie again. But yeah, he's back at it again in 1976. And this is him trying to cash in off the success of Jaws the year prior. And the you know subsequent wave of animal attack horror movies. And side note, as much as I love Jaws, I will never forgive it for inspiring the unending string of shitty like shark attack movies. It's actually kind of annoying. It's like you go into IMDb, you, if you could print out the names of every movie on IMDb, you could throw a dart, you'd probably hit a horror movie that has a shark in it. But <laughs> anyway, so, you know, you've got the main trio. Um, I don't remember their names off the top of my head. I keep forgetting to take notes about that kind of stuff. But 
they were all living in a little town in Georgia where they were shooting it. I feel like this is supposed to be like a Rocky Mountains town or something like that just because of the way everything looks, the fact that it's like a ski resort town. But, you know, I know there are some places in Georgia that do get snow occasionally. But, you know, you have your main trio. Uh, one's like a local hunter. One's like a park ranger. One's a naturalist who's living out in the forest. So you have our sort of like, you know, you have our quote-unquote, you know, Chief Brody. You have Quint and you have, um, is it Hooper? I, I haven't seen Jaws in a while. It's, but, you know, Richard Dreyfuss' character. Uh, funnily enough, even though they weren't like, even though it wasn't intentional, the three of them had actually worked together six years prior on the uh, John Wayne Western movie Chisholm. And I was kind of surprised by this because, you know, obviously it's basically just a worse version of Jaws just dealing with a bear. You know, the character stuff isn't as great, although it's still, you know, enough to keep you interested, at least as far as I'm concerned. Uh, it's not quite as suspenseful. Uh, you do have the cool POV shots with the bear when it's, you know, about to run up on someone. It's not so far out of the realm of plausibility that it just becomes stupid. Although this is probably the, although when you get to the ending and, you know, I'm not going to feel too bad about spoiling this just because, you know, if you've seen Jaws, you know how this goes, you know. The offending animal gets blown up by the uh, sole survivor. But, you know, in Jaws, it's, you know, Sheriff Brody shooting a scuba tank with a rifle after the shark, like, snatches up in its jaws. Here, there is a... It's a bear getting shot with a rocket launcher at a distance that I don't think a rocket launcher should be used at. (laughs) I don't know if it was just, like bad camera work, but it looked a lot closer than, you know, what would be considered minimum safe distance. But, yeah, first time I've ever seen that. But, interesting little bit of trivia, you know, obviously, getting back to it, is that obviously everyone kind of panned this for a while just because, you know, it was a Jaws ripoff, which admittedly it was, but, you know, like, Humans fighting killer animals is not a new thing. Jaws did not invent that. It's probably one of the oldest stories there is. It's basically the epic of Gilgamesh. You know, the character Enkidu is representing, like, you know, the wilderness and just sort of, like, wild people in general. And he's clashing with the king, Gilgamesh, who's basically representing, you know, the quote-unquote civilized world. So it's not like man versus nature is a new thing, but no, I, I would still agree that Jaws is a better movie, but despite that, it was still a successful one, and on top of that, it was actually the most successful indie film ever until Halloween came out a couple years later. And I'll just say this, great as Jaws is, as innovative as it was for both you know, the marketing level of movies and for, you know, the special effects. There's one thing Grizzly can say that Jaws cannot. Grizzly had an actual bear on set. His name was was Teddy. He was borrowed from a sort of breeding program in Washington State, 
And he was not only a captive Kodiak, which is basically just an even bigger version of a grizzly in terms of appearance, but he was actually the largest in captivity at the time. He stood about 11 feet tall when he was on his hind legs, which, yeah. Um, kudos to those actors for actually agreeing to go along with this because I don't imagine I'd be keen on acting if I had to be around a live bear. I've been around a grizzly bear in person once, and it was not something I'm keen to repeat. <laughs> you know, I can basically make jokes that bears are just overgrown forest puppies all I want, but I am well aware that even smaller ones could rip my head off or probably break my back with a paw swipe. But yeah, Grizzly by William Girdler. Um, this, along with, I'm pretty sure all of the other movies on this list are actually available on uh, Shutter North America. So if you want to give them a watch for free, you can just, you know, go on that uh, particular streaming app. Uh, Girdler had a... It's not really a sequel, but a lot of people call it a semi-sequel a year later, just because it has some of the cast members back and has a similar premise. Is Day of the Animals. Um, it's basically just a lower-grade version of Hitchcock's The Birds, just in the premise. But, you know, I can appreciate the fact that it takes a bizarre premise and just runs with it. It's basically the idea that CFC gases, you know, chlorofluorocarbon, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, they're depleting the ozone layer. Because, you know, this was back in the 70s before we had rules about, emi about emissions for those kinds of gases. And it's exposing animals and people as well to high altitude to a lot of UV radiation at higher altitudes, and it's basically fucking with everyone's heads, basic, you know, is how it goes. You know, the people in the movie are out hiking, and they sort of, like, split. And, I mean, things were kind of tense to begin with just because of their attitudes and outlooks, but it gets a lot more apparent later. More immediately, it's also making the animals in the area act a lot more... Uh, aggressive than they normally would be in real life. Because, you know, a lot of animals aren't going to attack humans if, unless it's out of, like, self-defense or territory. Um, you know, don't get too... If a bear comes near you, it's probably just because they think you are getting too close to their territory. So... We follow a park tour guide and his little hiking group of, like, boring, worthless characters, honestly, as they try to survive making it back down the mountains. Problem is that this is, as far as I can tell, it's northern California. Most of the land is above 5,000 feet, which is what they considered high altitude for the radiation. And you've got to deal with wolves, eagles, bears, mountain lions, etc., on top of that, it's also a lot of the domestic animals in town are also being affected. So people are getting attacked by their dogs. The rats are becoming a lot more bold. Like, they'll be out in the open a lot more often, and they won't, like, immediately flee when they see people. It's it's an interesting premise. It's not very well executed here. 
but part of it's also just the group. Their various dramas is just sort of causing them to slowly turn on each other. You got, like, Leslie Nielsen, for example, is kind of this, like, asshole. Um, he's already kind of psychotic, like, advertising executive. He's, like, hassling everyone else. You've got this sort of bickering middle-aged couple. You've got this teenage couple. You've got this mom who's trying to look after her son. You know, everyone's got their own, like, personal drama and shit going on, so it does have at least an element of personal investment that you can latch on to if you trying. Um, it's mostly just you watch for the camp and for the effects. It's not really that scary aside from just the concept itself, you know, being stranded in the wild where not only are you surrounded by animals, but the animals are actually a lot more aggressive than they normally would be. So if you like old school like animal attack horror or natural disaster movies, I'd recommend this one. And as a fun little trivia note, some of the animals were actually live animals, and they were trained by Monty Cox, who also did some of the animal training for Apocalypse Now and for the old uh, Incredible Hulk TV show with Lou Ferrigno. Uh, next up we have Piranha, directed by Joe Dante of Gremlin, Gremlins fame. And much like the first two up today and the one right after this one, again, this was written to sort of capitalize on the animal attack horror that Jaws had kind of, you know, create a bit of a fad for. In this case, I suppose it is its own kind of scary. In this case, rather than one big killer fish, you have a number of, you basically have like a swarm of tiny ones. This is also somewhat different, however. I, I may be spoiling a bit here, but it does come up in the synopsis in most searches and on the shutter page anyways. The difference here is that the two main characters, you have this out-of-town skip tracer. Uh, basically, they're meant to find, like, missing people. And a local, uh, and a local guy who's also kind of a drunk in a little riverside town called Indian Springs. And they find out that the fish are, in fact, part of a discontinued experiment conducted by the U.S. Army. The plan was basically to make a strain of piranha that could, you know, reproduce a lot faster, be a little more aggressive, stand up to adverse conditions better. And they were going to release it into the North Vietnamese river system. But, you know, one guy just sort of kept it going out of, kept the project going uh, after the funding was discontinued because the war ended. The exciting in, and the inciting incident here is that two teens kind of sneak into the old uh, army station for a swim and get attacked, so they go missing. That's why the skip tracer is here. It's it's a really fun uh, little attack movie, animal attack movie. Uh, it's produced by Roger Corman, who's kind of the king of like you know old B movies, and. He's he really has a knack for like making it, movies that are at least competent, even though they're comically low budget. Um, also got uh, the old character actor Kevin McCarthy making an appearance. You've got Dick Miller as the sort of um, he's a sort of rest, he's a sort of like hotel owner in the area. 
Uh, Dick Miller was a common... He worked with both Joe Dante before in Gremlin, uh, later in Gremlins, and he worked with Roger Corman before in... Uh, in his movie Bucket of Blood, way back in 59. And he was kind of famous for... Uh, you know, playing the character Walter, playing a character named Walter Paisley whenever he showed up for like you know a minor role because that was his uh, character in Bucket of Blood. And what makes it kind of fun is that, um, I think I remember this from like uh, Phil at the movies, another podcast. I was listening to his episode about the differences between, you know, uh, Jaws, the movie, and the book that was written beforehand. And I think he rem- and I think I remember him saying something about some of the town, some of, like, the town officials or some of the businesses in the area are, like, in debt to the mob, and that's why they're trying to stay open for the season, despite the shark attacks. And there's kind of an element of that here, like, uh, Miller's hotel owner character, Buck, the colonel who sent in to deal with the problem, is actually an investor in his hotel, so they're trying to like keep the problem quiet as much as they can. And other than that, it's got the whole... all the standard aspects of an animal attack horror movie like this. You've got... You know, on the one hand, you had the scientist who's trying to do this for science's sake. You've got the other one who's trying to, like, co-opt it for some kind of ends. You've got the military, um, you know, trying to solve it but not really having the equipment to do it and, you know, getting solved by locals thinking outside the box. Uh, actually, interesting little side note about this one. Even though, like, Grizzly was a far bigger ripoff of Jaws, uh, Universal actually tried to get an injunction against Piranha being screened. And part of that was just because the summer it was coming out, Jaws 2 was coming out. And they only dropped it because I think Spielberg actually, you know, saw, like, an advanced screening and actually praised the movie. So, you know, I think they were, like... You know, if our director isn't going to like back us up on this, maybe we don't have much of a chance in court, so they dropped it. And it spawned a bunch of sequels and a couple of remakes. Uh, fun little side note is that Piranha 2, the director was a video asinitus, who was a director of a bunch of like low-budget horror movies as well. And he actually fired one of his writers from the movie and decided to take over. That writer, by the way, was uh, James Cameron. <laughs> Whatever happened to him, I wonder. Anyway, moving on, we've got uh, Alligator, directed by Louis Teague. And, you know, it's based off the urban legend of the sewer gator. The idea that, uh, you know, for a while back in the day, you were actually allowed to have, like, alligators as pets. But when they got too big, uh, a lot of people would just supposedly flush them down the toilet. And there was always, like, rumors in urban legend that some of them survived. 
and like grew up, which no, especially not in like northern cities like New York and Chicago, because you know one aside from it being a sewer, even if they could find food, it would probably be horribly infected and festering to the point where they wouldn't survive it. And two, even if they could survive that, they wouldn't survive winter. But this is basically based off that urban legend anyway. And it has an explanation as to why that is. So our setup is that 1968, there's this little girl named Marissa. She's on vacation with her family in Florida and buys a baby alligator. And her rather surly and I suppose you could say abusive father just gets fed up with it, flushes it down the toilet. About 12 years later, there's a number of, like, animal parts and, like, human body parts that uh, turn up in the sewage treatment in Chicago. We find out fairly early on that there's this illegal experimentation going on for this, like, pharmaceutical company. They're trying to make some kind of, like, growth hormone to boost agriculture. Basically, they're trying to make cows and stuff like that. They're trying to make them get bigger so that, you know, more meat can be gotten from them without uh, needing to give them too much more food. So, what happens is that these animals that they're experimenting on, usually like stray dogs or stuff like that, they just dump them down into a uh, sewage, into a sewer... And because it's a combination sewer drainage thing, there's a lot of, like, access points. Basically, the gator has been feeding off these rejected specimens, which means that not only is he surviving the environment, he's actually getting a lot bigger than he normally would. Like, it's estimated in the movie that he's, like, 35 feet long, which I think 30 was, like, the largest ever like, Nile crocodile ever recorded, and even that's just an estimate because he was never caught. And he's incredibly tough to kill, as we see when the movie goes on, because, I mean, alligator skin is pretty leathery to begin with. When you get that big, it's basically bulletproof. And our main character is this, like, cop who's trying to deal with like, among other things, trying to solve the case because they think it's just some, like, serial killer on the loose. He's also coping with, like, sort of the survivor's guilt of an incident back in St. Louis a few years prior. Nothing's really said of much, but it resulted in his partner getting killed, and he kind of blames himself for it. And he also enlists the help of a herpetologist who is, unsurprisingly, the same girl whose gator got flushed down the toilet. So, it's actually pretty fun, and it is, there is a very America moment in there, because the gator has been revealed, and it's not even been two days, and there's already people, like, making souvenirs out of it, you know, despite the fact that people are getting eaten in this city. Uh, but yeah, Sheriff Brody, but yeah, Chief Brody, this guy is not, um... (laughs) He's not even, like, that high rank. He's actually He was actually kind of dismissed as a lunatic for a while because he tried telling people, you know, that there was a giant alligator in the Chicago sewers. 
you know, a lot of people justifiably thought the guy was probably just delirious from being unconscious for so long after seeing another like cop get killed. But yeah, that's alligator. All right, next up we have The Host, 2006, directed by Bong Joon-ho. Uh, director many in the U.S. might know better for uh, Snowpiercer or for his movie Parasite. On the surface level, it is basically just a monster movie, but it's a bit of a disservice to just call it that. It's basically a old-fashioned kaiju movie, just set and just set in the modern day and also updated with modern techniques and effects. It's also full of, you know, satire against the U.S. Army, the South Korean government, and their complicity in a famous case of pollution. So the movie opens with a scene of a American pathologist ordering his Korean assistant to dump a large amount of formaldehyde down a drain that leads into the Han River in Seoul. We then cut to several years later with a man named Gangdu running a snack bar in a park by the river with his father and his siblings. Uh, and then one day, there's a large sort of like fish fish cephalopod hybrid looking monster that just comes out of the river one day and just starts indiscriminately attacking people. Gangdu, our main character, tries to flee, but mistakenly grabs someone else's hand, thinking that it was his daughter. And a fair amount of the rest of the movie is him trying to find and get his daughter back. But the thing that makes that complicated is, aside from the monster itself, it's also... South Korean government shows up along with the U.S. military and they quarantine everyone who came into contact with the creature as apparently, and this is where the title comes in, not only is it attacking people, but it's also the host of a dangerous virus. The thing that sets this apart from a lot of other creature horror films is that in the style of the old uh, kaiju movies, the original Godzilla, it's not just a monster movie. It's also a satire of, like, timely, you know, political happenings. In 2006, a few years before the movie actually came out, similar to the opening scene, there was a U.S. military station in Seoul, and there was a Korean mortician working for them there. And he reported to the local press that he had been ordered to dispose of a large amount of formaldehyde uh, by just dumping it down the drain. Um, I should mention, for those of you who don't know, formaldehyde is like, it's basically embalming fluid. It's the kind of stuff you soak dead bodies in to preserve them. And a lot of morticians are kind of phasing it out because, among other things, uh, being around it too much can give you nerve damage or even cancer. But it caused both the, but it caused a large amount of antagonism for the locals against the U.S. Uh, in general, and the military in particular. Because, you know, aside from the sort of environmental recklessness, it was also just the general principle that they didn't seem to care what happened to it. Especially because there were later reported sightings of fish in the river that were just extremely, like, deformed. So... You know, as you might expect in this case, the U.S. military is portrayed as really completely uncaring about the well-being of the locals, 
more concerned with keeping a lid on information getting out. The South Korean government is portrayed as equally uncaring or at least inept and bureaucratic. And the U.S. military is also shown as using a chemical weapon called Agent Yellow to attempt to kill the beast. Uh, you know, not so subtle reference to Agent Orange, which was the defoliant that the U.S. military used in Vietnam, which is still causing birth defects, by the way, because it does not wear off quickly. This this is one of the rare movies in South Korea that's actually gotten like a warm reception by like North Korean officials, which you know did get Bong in sort of like it, it kind of tar- that kind of tarnished his reputation in his home country for a while. But a fair amount of people were like, "Hey, if the North is agreeing with us, then he's probably make. If the North is agreeing with us, then he's probably making a good point." And like you said, it's not so much an anti-American film as it is just having the U.S. military in a somewhat, not villainous, but antagonistic role. And it is definitely a satire of events that did involve us, well, you know, the military at least, in a pretty central way. So, yeah, I, you know, I'm not trash-talking any of the movies on this list today. I do think they're all worth a watch, else I wouldn't be talking about them. But this is definitely the one I think has the most depth out of all the movies, in terms of having some actually, like, broad themes beyond just the surface-level entertainment. All right, and last but not least, we have Graydon Clark's Uninvited, which is definitely the most comedic out of the bunch, I'd say. Uh, <laughs> um, I first heard about it. It's such a bizarre movie. I first heard about it from Red Letter Media's Best of the Worst series. They had their 2018 Christmas special, uh, Christmas or Cats. And ironically, this was their Best of the Worst when it was the only cat movie for the Christmas episode. <laughs> and essentially how it, the plot, such as it is, is that there's this animal testing facility and we don't know exactly what's going on. Uh, All we hear is just, like, sirens and, you know, panicked yelling, and you just hear screams and just see blood splatter on the wall. And you just see this tiny little cat walk out, and you're like, what the hell is going on? And then we cut to these, like, white-collar criminals, these, you know, uh, crooked businessmen, and they're planning a little trip to the Cayman Islands to launder some money, They run into this, like, group of teens or, like, 20-somethings along the way and, you know, invite them onto the boat as a place to have a party. It's a sort of, like, cover story in case the Coast Guard stops them because, I don't know, I guess for some reason they just can't go to the Cayman... They can't just go to the Cayman Islands. It's kind of weird. But one of the girls picks up the cat from the beginning, and this is kind of where everything kind of goes downhill. Um, One of the businessmen gets pissed at the cat and starts berating it, and the cat, we find out what's up with the cat. (laughs) It's like a mutant one, but the thing is that the cat kind of like swells up, and then there's like a tinier hairless cat that just pops out of the mouth and attacks people like, you know, the xenomorph, the xenomorph mouth. The best, 
way I could sum it up was just Rich Evans' response when he saw the cover because it has this, and he's like, is that a cat whose mouth is another cat? <laughs> and, I mean, part of it's also just the, you know, effects limitations. You want to have, you know, your puppet, but you want to have a, some mobility. So a lot of the times it's just a regular cat wandering around set with just this, you know, meowing constantly playing in the background. And then when it's the kill scene, then you go to the weird-looking puppet where it seems to, like, triple in size. Um, but, yeah, in all seriousness, as kind of silly as it is, the pacing is, like, really, really good. It's almost like the opposite of a lot of other horror movies where they just kind of fuck around for a little bit until the ending where, you know, the killer has to kill everyone. And, yeah, the only real complaint I have, just because, you know, it, it's fun enough that you can overlook the weirdness and kind of flimsiness of the story. But the only real complaint I have is that the last, like, third of the movie is really slow compared to the first two. But other than that, it's like you've got Clue Gulliger from, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2. You've got George Kennedy from you know, the Naked Gun series and Creep Show. So, you know, they're giving enough of a good performance to like just just draw you in enough to enjoy the movie. So that's gonna be it for today. I'm gonna sign off. Tomorrow we're gonna have the first of the Weird Wednesdays format. So it's just gonna be Um basically just a grab bag of some other movies that I didn't think were uh, couldn't really be categorized as easily, or if I couldn't find a lot of stuff to talk about with them, but I still think they're worth recommending. And then the day after that, we're going to go over John Car- John Carpenter's Apocalypse Trilogy. So The Thing, Prince of Darkness, and In the Mouth of Madness. Hope you'll join me then. Signing off. Have a good night. Bye.